is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to episode 7.5, Rectors, Vicars, and Curates, or what's up with all this religious terminology? It's just me, Courtney, today. Unfortunately, Eleanor was not able to make it, but I'm going to give you a mini overview of the Victorian religious scene, starting with some important dates. In 1454 or 1455, Johannes Gutenberg printed the Gutenberg Bibles, putting religion and literacy into the hands of the public. In 1517, Martin Luther's 95 Thesis signaled the impending split of the Catholic Church into Catholic and Protestant branches. In 1534, the Act of Supremacy transferred the Pope's power to Henry VIII in England. In the 1550s, Edward VI made Protestantism the official state religion. In 1558, Elizabeth I codified the Act of Supremacy and quelled impending religious war by combining Catholic and Protestant practices to create the Anglican Church. This is referred to as the Act of Uniformity, and the Statement of Combined Beliefs is called the 39 Articles. In 1611, the King James Bible became available. In the 1740s, the Methodist movement begins. In 1789, Jeremy Bentham's Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation is published. In 1795, Methodists officially split with the Church of England. In 1828, the Catholic Emancipation Act restores civil liberties to Catholics. Yay, they can vote again! In 1845, John Henry Newman converts to Catholicism and sets off the Oxford Movement. In 1861, John Stuart Mill's Utilitarianism comes out. And in 1865, William and Catherine Booth found the Salvation Army. As somebody who has just kind of passing familiarity with Victorian religious history, I find the whole topic to be very complex and dense, and anything as complicated and personally important to as many people as religion is, of course, going to be really hard to parse, especially in a 30-minute episode. So I'm going to do my best to clarify a few things for you, but I'm not going to go very deeply into theology. I've linked to some good resources to start in that direction if you're interested in the show notes. So let's start with a simplified breakdown of the Victorian religious scene. So of course the big deal is the Church of England, which is a state church from the times of Elizabeth I. And the hierarchy of the Church of England is important to understand 
before we can get to what's the deal with rectors, vicars, and curates, how can we tell them apart? So the hierarchy goes like this. God, the monarch, archbishops of Canterbury and York, bishops, archdeacons, deacons, rectors, vicars, and curates. That's the people hierarchy, but what about the place hierarchy? According to the BBC's website on the Church of England, there are 43 dioceses in England covering the two provinces of Canterbury and York, plus the diocese in Europe with chaplaincies from the Arctic Circle to the Canaries. Each diocese has a bishop and usually at least one suffragan or assistant bishop. Each diocese is split into two archdeaconries run by the archdeacons, and they're responsible for the administration of that part of the diocese. Each archdeaconry is split up into deaneries, which are a collection of parishes. The parish is the heart of the Church of England. Each parish is overseen by a parish priest, usually called a vicar or rector. Sometimes they are assisted by a curate or deacon or parish worker. The latter is a lay post, so non-specialized. As Susie L. Steinbach explains in Understanding the Victorians, which is a very excellent resource that came out in 2016, quote, Within the church, there was a range of theologies and styles of worship. At one end was evangelicalism. At the other end, a group of theologians who made up the Oxford movement, which called for the church to recommit to a more Catholic style of worship. The Oxford movement, led by theologians John Keeble and John Henry Newman, began in 1833 as a protest against the reduction that year of the power of the Church of Ireland. Members were also known as Tractarians after a series of tracts they published between 1833 and 1841. Um, and just as an aside, tracts are really huge deal in the Victorian period more generally, and you can find them parodied in such important works as Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone. So uh, Steinbach goes on, Tractarians held that Anglicanism lay not between Catholicism and extreme Protestantism, as was traditionally believed, but between Roman Catholicism and all Protestantism. In other words, that it was not a form of Protestantism at all, but a non-Roman form of Catholicism. This emphasis on tradition and on the power of the church appealed to many upper-class and middle-class people and to the Tory party. However, it also made them vulnerable to suspicions that they were simply Roman Catholics in disguise, a suspicion that seemed to be confirmed when their leader, Newman, converted to Roman Catholicism in 1845. Newman was beatified by Pope Benedict XVI in September 2010, leaving him only one step, canonization, away from sainthood. But while the formal Oxford movement ended with Newman's conversion, a, quote, high church constituency that emphasized authority, tradition, and ceremonial worship persisted. So we've got high church and low church. We've got um, Protestant and Catholic. We've got all of these different binaries of religious thought in the Victorian period. Other Protestant denominations at the time included Quaker and Unitarian faiths, which date back to the 17th century, and the Baptists. In the 19th century, several nonconformist denominations also emerged, including Methodism, Wesleyanism, I don't know what the ism of that is, but I'm guessing, um, and Calvinistic Methodism. Steinbach makes the important point that, quote, all nonconformist faiths had in common their fundamentally oppositional nature. 
In British society, not only was the Church of England closely tied to the landed aristocracy, but the established church was, unsurprisingly, given the term, part of the establishment. It reinforced hierarchical society and values. To be a religious nonconformist was more than a religious stance. It was fundamentally oppositional, anti-establishment stance. End quote. Um, which kind of is exemplified best of all by the Salvation Army, which is a religious movement that is built to serve the working class poor in the East End of London. Judaism was also a small but growing presence in the 19th century religious scene in England. Perhaps not as small as we think, because I suspect rampant anti-Semitism may have encouraged people to hide their faith. Steinbach notes that it was, quote, still largely concentrated in London, and by it, I should say Judaism, in the 1870s, and, quote, consisted by 1881 of approximately 60,000 people led by city and landed men. To put that into perspective, in 1881, the population of London was almost 5 million people. Um, so evangelicalism is one of the hugest and most pervasive um, religious uh, practices, but also discourses in the Victorian period. And so just a few fast facts about that. It swept Britain from the late 18th until the mid-19th century and set the tone for religious life and much of public life, generally for the better part of the Victorian period. It's not necessarily linked to political conservatism, which um, is actually more associated with the Anglican Church, but um, evangelicals could be socially conservative, um, and they were, in fact, very suspicious of and looked down upon activities like drinking and dancing. But they were often very radical politically, involved in causes such as the campaign to Appeal the Contagious Diseases Acts, for example, which involved promoting the civil rights of prostitutes. Evangelicalism gained popularity as a reaction to what seemed like the spiritual emptiness of the high church Anglicanism. It was not a specific theology, but rather an approach to Christianity, and an approach that's really um, characterized by emotional resonance to God and religion. And um, this was often interpreted by non-evangelicals as zealotism or fervor of a hysterical kind. Um, evangelicalism rejected ritual in favor of a direct and personal relationship with God. It was more simple like you and your Bible, you and your prayers, um, individual reflection and inner um, self-awareness were really important to the movement. The Christian gospel was especially emphasized as important within the Bible, and um, missionary work was very, very, very important. This list, by the way, is also drawn from Steinbach, who is one of the most up-to-date resources on Victorian culture and society. Her, her work updates one of the foundational reference texts in Victorian studies, which is Richard Altick's Victorian People and Ideas. So moving on. According to David Cody's article on the Church of England for the Victorian Web, which is another resource we often use here at Victorian Scribblers, and you've heard us talk about it before, quote, In the late 18th century, there were 13,500 Anglican priests in England, but only 11,700 livings. 
fixed incomes derived from church lands and tithes and attached to a particular parish to support them, and many of the livings paid so poorly that many priests held more than one. Some priests, too, thanks to political and social influence, controlled more than one of the wealthy livings. In addition, the church was far too dependent upon political and economic interests to reform itself. Half of all livings were granted by landowners, and the government had the right to appoint all bishops, a number of prebends, and hundreds of livings, so that it is not exaggerating too much to say that the church became, to a considerable degree, the preserve of younger sons of members of the aristocracy who had little interest in religion and less interest in the growing numbers of urban poor. There were, in consequence, over 6,000 Anglican parishes with no priests at all. Cody points out that this gap was quickly filled by Methodist evangelicals in the 19th century, and it's something that Francis Milton Trollope chronicles in the novel I've been mentioning over and over this season, The Vicar of Rexel. Um, but he also makes a really important point that as a career path for younger sons who weren't going to inherit estates, but who nevertheless needed a secure living, often to support frivolous lifestyles, the men who held these roles often used them to support other interests and livings. And so in fiction, for example, they're often um, amateur scientists and natural historians. So let's actually break down the terms now. A rector, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, was originally an incumbent of a pre-Reformation or Church of England parish where the tithes were retained by the incumbent, or the rector, um, and in later, the incumbent of a parish where this was formerly the case. Um, I'm going to break down my understanding of these definitions in a minute, but I'm just going to get them all out now. Also, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a curate is a clergyman engaged for a stipend or salary and licensed by the bishop of the diocese to perform ministerial duties in the parish as a deputy or assistant of the incumbent, an assistant to a parish priest. And finally, a vicar, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as, in early use, a person acting as a priest in a parish in place of the real parson or rector, or as the representative of a religious community to which the tithes had been appropriated. Hence, in later use in the Church of England, the incumbent of a parish of which the tithes were appropriated or appropriated, in contrast to a rector. So I think what I'm understanding in, is this. A rector lived on tithes. A vicar could be like the substitute teacher of the religious world, uh, filling in for the rector in the case of their absence. Or the term vicar can be interchangeable with rector. And finally, the curate was an assistant to the rector or vicar and was paid a salary. According to one of the sources I encountered, which is linked in the show notes, rectors got to keep the greater tithes, so the cream of the crop, the, hi the higher percentage of tithes, and vicars got to keep the lesser tithes. But I haven't had the time to corroborate this, so if you know, please send us sources. At any rate, how I have been keeping them straight in my head is by thinking of the penguins of Madagascar. So rectors are the skippers of the Church of England, vicars are the Kowalskis, and curates are the privates, because I am a serious scholar. So that's all I have for you today. To close, I'm going to quote a scene featuring one of my favorite 
directors in Victorian literature, which is Oscar Wilde's Dr. Chasuble in The Importance of Being Earnest. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the play, you should go read it right away. It's really short. It's hilarious. The characters run around under the assumed name of Ernest, um, professing that it's the best name, and the heroines say they'll only marry characters named Ernest, which means that their male love interests then need to set about trying to get their names officially changed if they want to keep the women they love, and that is the driving force behind the scene that I'm about to read to you, which features Jack, who, unbeknownst to everyone, well, I, no spoilers. Anyway, who wants to have his name changed to Ernest, uh, Miss Prism, the governess for his ward, Cecily, and Dr. Chasuble, the rector. Jack. Ah, that reminds me. You mentioned christenings, I think, Dr. Chasuble. I suppose you know how to christen all right. Dr. Chasuble looks astounded. I mean, of course, you are continually christening, aren't you? Miss Prism. It is, I regret to say, one of the rector's most constant duties in this parish. I have often spoken to the poorer classes on the subject, but they don't seem to know what thrift is. Chasuble. But is there any particular infant in whom you are interested, Mr. Worthing? Your brother was, I believe, unmarried, was he not? Jack. Oh, yes. Miss Prism. Bitterly. People who live entirely for pleasure usually are. Jack. But it is not for any child, dear doctor. I am very fond of children. No, the fact is, I would like to be christened myself this afternoon, if you have nothing better to do. Chasuble. But surely, Mr. Worthing, you have been christened already? Jack. I don't remember anything about it. Chasuble. But have you any grave doubts on the subject? Jack. I certainly intend to have. Of course, I don't know if the thing would bother you in any way, or if you think I'm a little too old now. Chasuble. Not at all. The sprinkling, and indeed the immersion of adults, is a perfectly canonical practice. Jack. Immersion? Chasuble. You need have no apprehensions. Sprinkling is all that is necessary, or indeed, I think, advisable. Our weather is so changeable. At what hour would you wish the ceremony performed? Jack. Oh, I might trot round about five, if that would suit you. Chasuble. Perfectly, perfectly. In fact, I have two similar ceremonies to perform at that time, a case of twins that occurred recently in one of the outlying cottages on your own estate. Poor Jenkins the Carter, a most hard-working man. Jack. Oh, I don't see much fun in being christened along with other babies. It would be childish. Would half-past five do? Chasuble. Admirably, admirably, takes out watch. And now, dear Mr. Worthing, I will not intrude any longer into a house of sorrow. I would merely beg you not to be too much bowed down by grief. What seem to us bitter trials are often blessings in disguise. Thanks for listening.
hand it up, hand it up, hand the baby up. I looked on it, in its little bonnet. I said, yay, verily, yay. Gaze upon its features and said, let us pray. Hurry up, hurry up. His father shouted out, baby squalling, can't you hear it falling? Take it, Jane, I think it's got a pain in its ragtime violin. Oh, my friends, oh, my friends, with our pickup by the once on the beach, I took a little stroll. There in a tent, I spied a little hole. I looked at it with a curious stare. Cried our bitter, do not venture there. What is it that attracts you to that tent, he cried. Then to him, I just replied. I want to see... I want to see, I want to see what's there inside it. Our bitter cry, that's not for gents. Those are ladies saving tents, I murmured, oh. I murmured, wow. Then as our bitter turned and left me, through that hole I tried to spy. But when that girl poked a finger in the eye, I said, I'm going... <laughs> Oh, yes, I'm going to a far, far better land. Victorian Scribblers is written by myself, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. Music for this podcast courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet No. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Poddington Bear's Bit Rio. And today's special closing music is Frank Curtis's The Ragtime Curate. After the morning.